The What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, and I am the CMO of W2O Group, the host of the What to Know podcast, and we are here at Bob Grupp's uh, Stratcom's Summit, and I am fortunate enough to be sitting across from Mark McKinnon, who probably could have uh, a dozen different titles. He's the producer of Showtime's The Circus, which is something I've had on my uh, to-watch list, and now that's going to get moved up on the list. He's a political advisor and has worked for a number of well-known names, people like George W. Bush, uh, John McCain, uh, Anne um, Richards. Richards, sorry, blanking on her name here, a very famous governor of Texas. Uh, and I'm missing probably, you know, half of the things that he's done. But welcome, Mark. It's a pleasure to have you. Hey, thank you. Out. Glad to be aboard. So you just um, you did a, a fascinating talk and, and really rallying around this concept of no labels. You're a guy that I think you said started off a little bit more on the D side, have drifted over to the R side. What I really loved is sort of how you have split the middle and really are intrigued and supporting of uh, people that are smart people, not necessarily politically minded. I do want to rewind a little bit, though, because one of the things that Bob Grupp mentioned, and this is going back to your early days, is you know this guy named uh, Chris Christofferson, who my parents were huge fans of. You met him, I think, when you were in high school. Can you give us a little vignette of like what that was like getting to know him and almost going down a path of being a musician? And uh... Yeah, sure. Um, well, I, for the first you know, 20, 25 years of my life, I was completely convinced that I was going to be a musician and that was all I was going to do all my life. I never had a plan B. I loved it. I had a Judy Collins, who was a famous folk singer, was my babysitter when I was a kid. And, and then I bumped into Chris Christopherson in high school and he, he liked our band and our music and what we were doing and, and came out to Colorado with some producers from Nashville and cut some demo tapes, tried to get us a record deal, which didn't work out, which is no surprise if you heard the tapes. But you can't because I burned them all. But anyway, I got the bug, and I, you know, I was sitting around Denver in high school. And I thought, well, this is pretty boring. I, you know, I'm, I want to hit the big city in the bright light. So I just ran away from home and hitchhiked to Nashville, and ended up. Uh, Christopherson was very generous. As anybody who knows him, and that's the overriding feature of him beyond his talent. It's just he was went out of his way to help so many people including to me so he'd let me live in his apartment for four years and uh or so and let me hang around the you know just was very kind to let me hang out at the recording studio and record my songs and try and get them uh you know and publish and get them out there and uh i ended up uh not having a lot of success and i ended up back in texas and one point where i sort of exercised some wisdom in my life i think was to look around, you know, I wished at the time that there was like a you suck, you don't machine where I could just, there is one today, it's called the internet, but it wasn't back then, so uh, there's no way to really tell you. Of course, I thought I had it all going on, but then by the t when I got to Austin, Texas, which was the live capital, live music capital of the world, I looked around and there was some heavy talent there, and I just said, you know what, there's some pretty good cats in this business, and, and they're not doing that well, so maybe you should look to plan B. Because I realized on the arc that I was on, I was going to end up at the Austin Holiday Inn as the second act when I was 50 years old. So I got into journalism, did that for a while, started covering politics, discovered I love politics, love campaigns, love doing media. Uh, and, you know, it, it all, the, the common element was I just like the creative side of the business and the storytelling side. Yeah, one of the things that you did talk about that I loved was 
sort of what it takes for a politician to become successful. So this is pivoting from your music career and you just mentioned the journalism and politics. And so I was fascinated, but I guess not surprised, but maybe you could just walk us through that in terms of, I think it was the villain, it was the hero, and I think there is no better place than just recently in the, the election between uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And uh, you stressed the fact that she was not as clear on her message, even though she may have been probably a more capable politician. He was very clear in his message. But, you know, you've seen the going back to I think you, you started off with um, Ted Kennedy and uh, him being the potential uh, running uh, the, the potential presidential candidate instead of Jimmy Carter back before we had Reagan come into play. What, what was that construct? And, uh, you know, I mean, well, what I learned over 30 years of doing politics and campaigns is that we conventionally think about the idea of storytelling as it relates to culture, books, movie, what have you. But storytelling is just as important in campaigns and businesses and any any entity that's trying to communicate. People want to hear stories. They want a, information that connects up to some broader meaning. Uh, and so great campaigns tell great stories. And so we think a lot about that when we do campaigns and we talk to the candidates about the importance of creating a narrative architecture. And the way that we break that down is through the following filter. Establish a threat or an opportunity identify victims of that threat or denied opportunity, identify the villains who are imposing the threat or denying the opportunity, propose a solution, reveal the hero. That's a classic narrative architecture. And when you look at campaigns that win, you'll find a, a storyline there, and those that lose usually don't. And, the, and, and, and as important, and part of the storyline is a clear and compelling rationale for the campaign. So if you just look back at this last campaign as an example, and regardless of who you supported, if you ask yourself the question, who had the clear rationale and who told the story, there's only one answer. I mean, Donald Trump, make America great again, is a clear rationale. And Hillary Clinton's rationale, I'm still not sure. <laughs> and, you know, the Washington Post, uh, couple, uh, a couple of writers just wrote a book called Shattered, and they talk of, throughout the whole book how the whole campaign the whole time was arguing way past their announcement and well into the campaign about the fact that they didn't have a clear rationale for Hillary Clinton's candidacy, and she was constantly demanding that they find one for her. But if you're that far into a campaign and you haven't found a rationale, then you know you're in big trouble. And that was the case. And you ask, think about Trump's storytelling. Identify the threat. People coming across our borders, terrorists, the media elite in Washington. What's the opportunity? Make America great again. Who are the victims? Hardworking class Americans. Uh, you know, all over the country, but in, especially in places like the Midwest and uh, whose quality of life is declining or have lost their jobs. Who are the villains, the, the Mexican immigrants, the Chinese, the, the media elites? What's the solution? Build a wall, tear up the trade deals, drain the swamp. Uh, reveal the hero, Donald Trump. That's a kind of classic, clear storyline architecture. And Trump did it and Clinton didn't. So I have to ask you a little detour question, but related to the French election, which happened yesterday, and the fact that uh, Marie Le Pen was defeated, and I think it showed a little bit of this, um, maybe a detour away from this populist movement, because I think if you depoliticize what's been going on in the world, starting with Brexit, certainly Putin, Trump, we had, had this, I think, rising up of people saying, look, I'm tired of, you know, being the downtrodden and I want some change and the current politicians aren't doing that. Do you see any kind of a, you know, um, 
Is this truly a, a break of the trend, or was it strictly a Marie Lapin was just too scary for people? Well, I think that we have to be careful about these sort of memes and uh, and sort of macro trend lines that we try and uh, establish as a result of the last election. And I talk about in, and I talked about in my talk that things are never static. I mean, things are constantly changing, and so. Trump wins, and there's some there's some movements across the globe, and suddenly it's like there's this, the storyline. It's all about nationalism. Well, as it turns out, that's not entirely the case, and in some cases, it may be a reaction to Trump in part that it's not going that direction. Uh, maybe that could be the case in France, where you had people saying we don't want to have happen here what happened in America. On the other hand, the guy who won was not a conventional politician. He was, you know, he'd never held political office before. So in many ways, he was appealing to something that's not pure populism, but it's something that I do think is, it goes beyond, well beyond our borders, which is the idea that people are looking for a different solution, not the same old thing, not politics as usual, and somebody that looks and acts differently than what they've seen before, and that's what they got. So I'm gonna bring this back to a conversation you and I were having um, while we were waiting we were talking about Sally Yates, and you had an interesting quote yesterday uh, on Twitter. Um, for those, just from a context perspective, she was before a congressional hearing and talking about Flynn and, and sort of everything that went down. But you said the Democrats could do worse than having her, I'm paraphrasing, as their candidate in 2020. And it struck me as like, you know what? In watching her respond to the questions, that's not a crazy idea. And she is someone, and I'll let you finish this, but who does not have a true political background. Um, talk a little bit about how serious you were and, and the rationale. And I think you had a little epiphany while we were doing I that. Did, I did, yeah. To share that. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, first of all, I, I, I think the idea of somebody like Sally Yates is the right direction for Democrats to go. I think there's a conventional reflex to go to the Bernie Sanders or the Elizabeth Warren or sort of the old you know, lions of the party. And I just think that's misguided. And I think that uh, the Democrats need to, to recognize the appetite in the country, not for Donald Trump, but for just for something different, something entrepreneurial, something different, something not typically p political. And, you know, I, I, I mentioned this thing about Sally Yates about a week ago on Morning Joe, uh, just the notion that there was, you know, somebody who told truth to power that was not a politician. She'd been in government a long time, but as a prosecutor. And then I thought about, you know, what do Democrats need to do to win the presidency? They need to win the, more of the South. And, you know, Bill Clinton was a Southerner. Jimmy Carter was a Southerner. They, you know, it's, and so I said, how about a woman who's a prosecutor, tough on crime from Georgia? That's a pretty good recipe for a candidacy. You know, you know, maybe not at the top of the ticket, but certainly maybe as VP or definitely as obviously attorney general for any Democrat that might be elected. It'd be interesting to go that I think that's the kind of thinking that Democrats should adopt in thinking about who 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 should be coming up the ranks to look to people more like Sally Yates because I think that well you talk about authentic you know she she just came across as real and honest and credible all the things that I think you know people are looking for in a candidate and then I had this epiphany that I uh, I, I mean, I remembered initially uh, that I had worked for a guy named Comer Yates 20 years ago running for a congressional seat in Georgia, and he lost badly, as I recall, and I think that, that, he, that he lost to Bob Barr, but I remember thinking during the campaign the whole time that I really liked Comer, but it was his wife, Sally, who really should have been the candidate, and that was the same Sally Yates. And my epiphany was just realizing that Bob, it was Bob Barr, the guy that beat Comer Yates, that appointed Sally Yates as a federal prosecutor.
So we've come full circle. That's a, it's a very interesting circle, yeah. <laughs> and so speaking of coming full circle, um, The Circus. This is a show that uh, you're producing on Showtime, and it's really it's demonstrating like all this craziness and, and sort of looking behind the scenes, but I think giving some of the narrative behind you know what's happened, and you're probably as well positioned as anyone having worked on a number of campaigns. You know, we mentioned for uh, George W. Bush, the advertising campaigns, and really tapping that authenticity. How did you, you know, how did the show come to be? I, I know you've also done work, I think, on writing or, or sort of helping on Newsroom, mm -hmm. as well as House of Cards, so yeah. Jermaine. Um, how did that come about and like how long, what's the arc of this thing? It's a long, long arc and I could write a book about the arc. It was a, it was a, about a 15 year process and probably a hundred meetings and phone calls. I really believed in the idea, which was a real time documentary about what goes on inside a campaign. I just have been in a lot of campaigns and just saw the drama and the characters that are in the ecosystem of the campaign that I thought that the public would find entertaining, informative. Uh, and uh, that they learn more about the candidates and the campaigns in a way that would make them better understand who these candidates were, why politics was important, et cetera. And uh, uh, what happened was TV executives loved the idea and they just thought it was impossible to do because the important element of the circus is not, it's not a documentary you see six months after the election, it's every week. So we start shooting Monday, shoot Monday through Friday, Saturday, and put it up every Sunday night. So it is right on top of the news uh, and what's happening, you feel like you're in the cockpit of the campaign as it's unfolding. Uh, and to me, the reason that that works is, is it's why any good storytelling works, any good movie works, or any good book works. The best part of that is when you don't know the ending, right? If you know the ending, it's not nearly as interesting. So usually you see documentaries after the thing's done, you say, oh, I know what happened. So not as interested. But this, in the circus, we are right on top of it, and it is happening in real time. And so it was a... It was a, uh, we got to do it. We got to do it in the most interesting election and surprising election in American history. And so for all the obvious reasons, it turned out the timing was perfect. We got a great audience and great response and so good that after I figured we were one and done and one week into the administration, the president of Showtime called up and said, hey man, the circus is still out there. So get out there and cover it. The show must go on. And so we did it from Washington. I was skeptical. Uh, that it would work as well as the campaign, just because it was a campaign. And I just thought that's Washington. It's not going to be as interesting. It's static. We're not moving around the country as much. And it turns out it was not only as good, I think in many ways better, just because we found really interesting ways to shoot it that has never been done before. But also it's just that people are dialed in. They're, they're really paying attention, whether you're a Trump supporter or opponent, Everybody's fascinated by what's happening. Everybody is fascinated. And we have like this national civics lesson going on. And so we kind of help people understand it just from a, from a, you know, a few guys who've been through the rodeo a few times and can kind of just reflect every Sunday night in a loose, cool, loose documentary format that's not boring like you know, Sunday talk shows or having to read the newspaper. It's just fun, funky, and loose. So I have to ask you a question, and I was struck by this as I was listening to you earlier, that... Over the last 16 years, we've had some good presidents. I, I actually realized just how much better George W. Bush was, I think, now in retrospect. I really liked Obama. But we ended up in a little bit of gridlock, right? Because under Bush, you had the Democrats digging in their heels and vice versa with Obama. We demonstrated this go around just how broken we are and how split we are. 
I think there are a lot of people that had the realization, a lot of Republicans that didn't necessarily love the idea of Trump and a lot of Democrats that were sort of crushed, but also maybe not 100% behind Hillary. You seem like a perfect person to help us see forward, like what is the healing process and how do we come to a place where I think a lot of people want government to work again and we realize like maybe this is what needed to happen. Trump needed to burn everything to the ground to be able to build it up again. Maybe I'm way off base, but I'd love to get your perspective. No, I, I think that's accurate. And I think uh, actually one of the components of the Trump presidency that is n not overlooked but maybe underappreciated is the extent to which he ran a non-ideological campaign. He didn't run as a typical Republican, uh, and, and which has confused a lot of Republicans about where the party is and where it's going. That's, that's a whole other discussion. But I thought for a long time that that uh, people were tired of politics as usual. They're they're not happy with the Republican Party. They're not happy with the Democratic Party. And Trump, uh, part of his success was that he realized that. But I thought somebody would just run as a third party. He kind of did that and then took the Republican Party hostage. But what I see in my life, uh, and when I talk to neighbors and friends, and I spend a lot of my time not in Washington but in Colorado and Texas, and I find that you know most people identify themselves as either Democrat or leaning Democratic or Republican or leaning Republican, but most of them are not harsh partisans. They are, you know, somewhere in the broad middle, and at the end of the day, what they care about is not that it's a Democratic solution or a Republican solution. They just want progress, and they're tired of government being shut down and people just throwing sand in the engine, and they want some results. So we started an organization, uh, Nancy Jacobson, uh, the chief engine behind this idea of no labels, uh, which is six or seven years ago now, and the idea was, listen, you know, increasingly voters are just demanding some problem solving, and they don't care if it's blue or red. And so a lot of what we did was just facilitate getting Democrats and Republicans in the same room, and we found that when we did that, surprising things happened. First of all, they liked each other. You know, they, we'd, everybody's demonizing each other and hadn't been in the same room. We got them in the same room. They said, well, you're actually okay, and, oh, you know, actually we've got some common ground we can work on and wouldn't that be great and hey by the way when we work together we can get more done and hey when we get more done our constituents respond uh, in a very positive way because they say hey you're actually getting some results up there and, and which is contrary to most of what they see on television about Washington today so No Labels is a solid organization that's doing really good work and just facilitating bringing the parties together which is increasingly important because the longer we wait the longer there's gridlock the worse our problems are getting and the more people are getting well, I'm looking forward to, and I'm going to keep, keep a close eye on that because uh, I, for one, would love to see some solutions. And I'm of that mindset of, you know, I lean in a direction, but at the end of the day, I, you know, I want to see us move forward. And I think a lot of other people do, no too. Nolabels.com. Nolabels.org, I guess. Dot org. Yeah, I was going to say dot org would make yep. more sense. We'll make yep. sure we, uh, we feature that. Um, so two sort of last questions, and I know we, we're running out of time here. One is I love to find out who's influencing the influencers. You've had an opportunity to meet a ridiculous sort of number of people, uh, both in politics. You know, we talked about Chris Christopherson, Bono. Um, who has influenced you in your life? Who has been that inspiration? And then is there a business book that you've been reading or have read in the past, I don't know, five years that you say, maybe it's shattered, this is fascinating to me. This is something people who are listening to this show should be checking out. Um, yeah, there's a, a the person who's influenced me most of my life is a is my uncle, and he was kind of the black sheep of the family. Uh, got in a lot of trouble in high school. Ended up in the 10th Mountain Division ski uh, division of the army. 
uh, and then kind of disappeared for a few years, and then he started showing up as a stunt skier in James Bond films, and uh, this incredibly charismatic guy disappeared into Europe for a while, became kind of an international playboy, model, actor, stunt skier, stunt motorcycle driver, and then came back to the United States, went to work for IBM, and within a year became the top salesman in North America. He married a woman from Paris. He had two houses, five cars, as successful as you could get from a conventional point of view. He woke up one day and said, all wrong. This is not rewarding, not fulfilling. I'm not getting anything out of this. I'm not learning anything anymore. Divorced his wife, sold everything he had, and moved to a small little tiny town in Vermont where he's been living the last 40 years as kind of the resident philosopher on almost nothing. And he, his mantra in life is, if it's comfortable, it's wrong. And at many junctures in my life where I was facing big decisions, I either get a call from him or I think of him saying, if it's comfortable, it's wrong. And that, what he means by that is when you have decisions to make in life, it's easy to kind of check off to the easy way to go. But that's rarely the, the path that leads to the most knowledge, the most reward. It's often not comfortable, but, uh, but I've taken that advice at, at, at every big turn in my life, and it's really paid off. So that's my mantra. The book, boy, uh, got so many. Uh, if, but if you're interested in politics, I'd say two. Uh, Paul Begal and James Carville wrote a book called Buck Up, Suck Up. That's just kind of the basic fundamentals, a lot of the stuff that I was talking about today in terms of kind of fundamental ways to think and run campaigns. It's, it's just a great primer, real easy, fast read fund. They're brilliant guys, brilliant strategists. That's good. And, and also, if you really want to kind of understand why I think the circus is appealing, read Game Change by my co-hosts, Mark Halpern and John Heileman about the Obama campaign, because that... That was like the book form of the circus. That was like getting behind the scenes and really understanding the characters and how important the players are in the whole 360 orbit of the campaign. Uh, and part of the reason John and Mark were interested in doing the circus, it was kind of the video version of Game Change. And it's a, I was there for that whole campaign. And when, I, when, I, when they published the book at first, I was like, oh, I, would, I lived that. I couldn't be that interesting. And I couldn't put it down. And it's like a thriller. And now they're off. The reason we have just finished the last season of episode of season two is Mark and John are off to write the game changer version of the Trump campaign, which I assure you will be just as compelling. I'm sure. Well, three quick reactions. So one most fascinating story I've heard from anyone in terms of who's inspiring you. So thank you. Two, <laughs> sure. My daughter is going to University of Vermont next year, so I may have to like oh, look your brother up. Yeah. And yeah. three, it looks like, you know, maybe you need to help him write a book because he's got the name of the book already done. Right? Exactly right. So here's the just interesting. I got a text. Just as we were talking, uh, this is the kind of response I'm getting. So after listening to yesterday's hearing, I find Sally Yates' candidacy much more appealing and more realistic. I love it. I love it. Well, so if she runs, you will have heard it here first. <laughs> That's we'll exactly really right. Twitter handle. Yeah. So last question before we wrap up. This is a fun one, and I have to ask you, as a guy that started off as a musician, uh, I ask everyone, you're stuck on a desert island. You have one album you can listen to. Not your favorite album, per se, but the one that's the most listenable. Who would that be and why? Well, it's one probably most of your listeners would never have heard, but this is why they should hear it. It's an album by Willis Allen Ramsey, uh, who there's is an iconic character. You ask, I mean, Austin, Texas in the mid-'70s was... That's why I went there. It, I mean, it was Jerry Jeff Walker and Michael Murphy and all these great Willie Nelson... Uh, this great fertile landscape of musicians, and the, the, I'm sure you, they would all pick this same album. It's by a guy named Willis Allen Ramsey, who was this quirky, quirky guy who did this album. A bunch of cuts off the album, others recorded uh, that, that went on to be big hits. 
Um, muskrat love, for example, is one of them. Um, a bunch of others, but uh, the but it is the best the best songs, the best songwriting, the best singing. And the guy was a nutty perfectionist who created like the best album we've ever heard in our lives. And for odd reasons that nobody's ever been really able to explain, he never could produce another album. And, and every five years we get the message that Willis is in the studio again producing number two. But, it, but a part of it, I think, was he just, you know, in a weird way, he's such a perfectionist that he couldn't just do a sophomore thing because the person was so perfect. So Willis Allen Ramsey, that's my pick. Well, now I'm intrigued. I'm going to have to listen to it. The one song I would pick is Jackie Wilson's Higher. That's a good one. I I could uh, see that. Well, thank you so much. I'm here with Mark McKinnon, who is the producer of Showtime's The Circus. Uh, Political guru has run many a campaign. Uh, Nice guy extraordinaire because he sat here and and told me during battery (laughs) problems. I've been there. I've been there, brother. He has a very handsome, uh, you know, hat on right now as well. We'll have to share some pictures. But thank you so much, Mark. Awesome. Thanks for being here. Yeah. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O Group and uh, host of the What to Know podcast live from the Stratcom Summit. Thank you. Want more episodes of the What to Know podcast? We post a new episode every Thursday. Check them out on iTunes, the podcast app, and the podcast page at w2ogroup.com backslash what to know.